0: Well, uh, love you guys, here we are in the house of the Lord yet again, and I often say to the first-time visitors, you know, welcome, we are so glad you're here, and that is true. But I just want to acknowledge our uh, regular attenders, you know, I'm just glad you're here too, and uh, we love you guys very much, and uh, this is our family, amen? amen? And it's good to gather in God's house and around God's Word as God's people to do God's work, Amen. So to that end, why don't you get your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 8. I have a couple of announcements. Well, one, I think. Dan covered the, uh, the Mother's Gathering. Okay, cool. Well, I've been invited to uh, teach at a men's retreat for Grace Church in September, and they said that there was plenty of room for our men to come and gather as well. And so it's at Heartstone Bible Camp, uh, a little farther up north, maybe in the Mendocino area and so uh, I know the brother that runs that camp. It's an awesome place, and so uh, we go to the Calvary Chapel Conference every year in February, and that's really our, our conference, and we have a great time there, but it's cool to have one in the fall that, that we can go to, and I'm honored to be able to teach there, so just want to let our guys know. If you uh, would like to go to that, I certainly encourage you to do so. Mark your calendars, and uh, be great to be able to fellowship in that context as well in September. I think uh, 16th and 18th, if I'm not mistaken. Let me check. We're having a bad time with the dates today. 16th and 17th. Thank you. It ain't easy doing the announcements and the dates and the times and all that stuff. I'm here to tell you. So, anyway, all right. Well, we're going to be picking up in verse 12 today in our study of John. So we are continuing our journey through the book, and particularly chapter 8 at this point. And last week I kind of gave a lengthy uh, introduction, if you will, dealing with uh, the Feast of Tabernacle, which is where we currently are. And I really belabored it and then didn't even get into the, the passage that I intended to get to concerning the, the Feast of Tabernacles. So I'm not going to belabor it so much this time, though that last week's um, introduction would be more actually relevant to the message we are in today. We spent quite a bit of time dealing with the, uh, the woman caught in adultery. That's just such a, a glorious text. But today, we pick up in verse 12, and we are still in the Feast of Tabernacles. You remember when Jesus said, I am the… He, uh, he said, you know, come to me and drink, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Remember that? That was on the great day of the Feast. That would have been the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Then there's the story of the woman caught in adultery. And then it picks right back up with where we are today, and we are still, it appears, at the Feast of Tabernacles, on the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And I just say that because it's very relevant to uh, kind of some of the imagery and the language that Jesus uses today in our study. So just a, just a short and brief recap. Let's uh, throw up the, um, that first image of the tabernacle uh, yeah, this, so the, this is what it would have looked like when they were wandering through the wilderness in the 40 years. You had the various tribes of Israel camped around the tabernacle, which would be the centerpiece, which was this tent, this portable place of worship, the tent of meeting, it's often called, where God would meet with His people. So truly God dwelt in the midst of His people. And that's, that alone, that'll preach. That's glorious. God dwells in the midst of His people. And so when you uh, consider this feast that they would have yearly, and it was a pilgrimage, one of three that all the, the males of Israel had to attend, they would gather in Israel and Jerusalem, and they would make these little makeshift tents, and they would camp out for a week at this feast in remembrance of when this was the way that Israel, you know, in, in remembrance of Israel's time in the wilderness. So that's, that's kind of the, the feast of tabernacles. Remember that? We're clear on that? And so um, that's important to kind of have in our minds as we consider the, the context of where we are at. We'll get more into that in just a moment. So that's where they are uh, with Jesus. He's at the feast uh, in, in Israel there. Now look with me at verse 12, verse 12 of John chapter 8. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, this is a significant verse, because this is the second of the seven I am statements. Remember, we've talked about that at great length already. So one of the things that's unique about the Gospel of John is the I am statements. There are seven of them. Does anybody remember what the first one was? huh? I'm the bread of life. Very good. I had to go back and look that up because I had already forgotten. And so, uh, it is the bread of life. That was the first one. And here, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And we know that Jesus is identifying with the burning bush in Exodus. Now, let me just say at this point, this is all very fascinating to me. There are so many different details that, uh, that intermix together here, having to do with the wilderness, Moses, the feast, um, and Jesus is really tying all these together and then showing how these things ultimately pointed to Him. And so Jesus is connecting Himself back to the burning bush where Moses said, who should I tell them sent me when He goes back into Egypt to confront Pharaoh And uh, he said, tell him that I am has sent you. So when Jesus says, I am, and he says the bread of life or the light of the world, it's it's obvious that he is claiming to be divine. And he would have to be in order to be able to truly be whatever he's claiming to be, the bread of life, the light of the world. You couldn't make such a claim unless you were God, God in the flesh. And so it's kind of what we have going on here. And Jesus says that He is the light of the world. And if you follow Him, you will not walk in darkness. I love that. Jesus is the light. All we have to do is stick close to Him. He is the one that we follow, you know. To get to heaven, it's not like we have a map that tells us how to get there. We just follow Jesus. We just walk with Him, seek Him, honor Him, believe and trust in him, and we will arrive at the destination. Amen? Isn't that cool? And so Jesus is the light. We follow him, and we will not walk in darkness. Now, just in keeping with everything that's going on here, remember that Jesus said that he was the living water. Remember that? I am the living water. And, you know, if anyone drinks of this water, if anyone believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, that very likely as a reference Jesus is making back to the time of wandering through the wilderness. Remember the miraculous water? Remember how they were, they were, uh, they were very thirsty and crying out for water? And uh, Paul actually picks up on this a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says this, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So as Moses struck the rock and the water came forth and the people drank of that water miraculously, that even that was a picture of Christ. Those would come and drink of the water who would believe in Him and out of their hearts would flow rivers of living water. So you see the imagery there. Jesus is saying, that speaks of Me. Paul said that Christ was that rock. And that spiritual water speaks of Him. Well, now Jesus is using new imagery. He's gone from the water. Now He's talking about light. And I would say this also harkens back to the wilderness wanderings. And so, um, I'm going to show this, the, uh, the fire, the pillar of fire. We're told that when they were wandering through the wilderness, the Israelites, again, you kind of have the, the tents meeting around the tabernacle there, that God dwelt among His people as a pillar of fire by day and a cloud, excuse me, fire by night and cloud by day, right? You familiar with that? Does that ring a bell? And so, obviously, this is just a kind of a cartoon depiction, but uh, it's an interesting thing to kind of consider what that would have looked like. And so, again, just as Jesus is, you know, the water that they drank of in the wilderness really spoke of Christ. In the same way, you had this this fire, this light that provided light for the Israelites. This too would be ultimately fulfilled by Christ, as he dwelt in their midst. Okay, that's, that's enough for that. And so this is all very, uh, all very interesting to me. And uh, let me just read this, uh, this commentary to us um, regarding the light and the Feast of Tabernacles. It says this, "...the analogy of light as with Jesus..." Earlier, uh, Jesus' earlier use of the metaphor of living water was particularly relevant to the Feast of Tabernacles. So just as Jesus' uh, use of water that was relevant to the Feast, well, so is His use of light. So the daily water-pouring ceremony had its nightly counterpart in a lamp-lighting ceremony. Remember I said that they would pour water out on the steps, and Jesus cried out and said, you know... Come to me, you who thirst and drink, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Very symbolic. Well, there was actually an evening ceremony that would take place that was centered on light. And so Jesus capitalizes on that as well. So it says, continuing on, In the very court of the women where Jesus was speaking, four huge candelabra were lit, pushing light up into the night sky like a searchlight. The people, even the most dignified leaders, danced exuberantly around the candelabra through the night, holding blazing torches in their hands and singing songs of praise. It was against the backdrop of the ceremony that Jesus made the stunning announcement that He is the true light of the world. And so that's, uh, that's very, very cool. I'm going to show you one more image of the temple. So... This is what the temple would have looked like by the time Jesus was on the scene. And this is the, the courtyard of the women, and this is also the treasury, and we're told a little later in the chapter that that's where Jesus was at. So we know Jesus was right here at this moment when he was teaching, and this is the very place where that ceremony would be happening, where they would light those huge candles, candelabra, and uh, And so it's against that backdrop that Jesus would cry out to the people, I'm the light. I'm the light of the world. Does that that make sense? That's pretty cool when you kind of consider it in that context. And so that's what Jesus does. He cries out and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. So everything that they looked to in the past that they celebrated, Jesus said, that's all about me. I have come and I have fulfilled that. And I am the substance of it. And so look to me. I'm the light. If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness. So what is the significance of light versus darkness? Uh, This biblical metaphor of light and darkness. Well, oftentimes light represents truth. And darkness represents error. Right? So walking in the truth of God versus walking in error. It represents knowledge versus ignorance you know if there's something that we are ignorant about or we don't know we might often say i was in the dark on that one right and so we know how that can be used in that way light often represents holiness in the bible versus uh wickedness darkness wickedness and i would say that that you know is peace and rest versus uncertainty and even paranoia you know walking in the light there's holiness and there's peace but walking in the darkness there's uncertainty and even as i said paranoia i love that verse in proverbs it says that the wicked flees when no one pursues have you ever thought about that what that verse means it means that i mean it's it's because of a person's guilt that they are on the run, but no one's chasing them. It's just your own guilty conscience. And so um, the, the guilty flees even though no one pursues. And in a lot of ways, that comes with a life of living in darkness, living in wickedness. And I would also say that light speaks of clarity and direction. You know, it can be very disorienting to be in a place that is pitch black dark. You know what I mean? Even just, you ever got up in the middle of the night and it's just pitch black and you can't see and you are trying to walk through your room and you don't know if there's something like right in front of you that you really don't want to stub your toe on, but that's the worst when that happens, you know? And uh, just to say you do bump into something and it really, it jars you, right? Because it is pitch black, you can't see a thing. Versus when there is light, When there is light and you can see where you're going and what you're doing, there is this clarity and direction that comes and you're not so uh, disoriented, as it were. And so, a lot of significance when it comes to the issue of light and darkness in the Bible. And Jesus, of course, says that He is the light and that we should walk in the light. He says that He is the light of the world. Not just the light there in Jerusalem for the Jews at the feast, but the light for the world And that whoever follows Him would not walk in darkness, but would have the the light of life. So kind of on that theme, I just wanted to talk a little bit about other verses that deal with the issue of light. Sounds good? Because there's a lot that the Bible has to say about that. I just wanted to visit some of these verses together. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. Our God is light. Amen. No darkness in him whatsoever. And if we say that we belong to him, then it would follow that we are children of the light, that we walk in the light as he is in the light. And if we do that, we have fellowship. Because you know what darkness does? It causes us to hide. If we're walking in darkness, if we have secret sin, hidden sin, causes us to isolate and separate from the light. That's what happens. It's the first thing that happens. You separate from brothers and sisters. You stop coming to church. And so if we are in the light as He is in the light, then we will have fellowship with one another. We will desire to be with brothers and sisters who are also walking in the light. And so that's something to consider in your own life. How are you doing with that? Are you walking in the light as He is in the light? Do you delight to be with brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do you feel the need to separate and isolate and hide from them for some reason? Something that we all have to consider. Another one, 1 Peter 2.9, it says, "...but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people." That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We all lived in the darkness at one point in time. We were all blind. We were all ignorant. We were all slaves to sin, living and walking in corruption. It may have looked very different. It may have looked very different, but that was all of us until we were rescued out of that. And God called us out of that darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen. Psalm 119, 105, I love this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word, God's very word, it is light for us. We can see where we're going. We can see how to live because we have His light. And His, light is a, uh, His word is a light to our feet. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 You are the light of the world. Isn't that interesting? First, Jesus says He's the light of the world. And here in Matthew 5, He says, You are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven." And so we have a responsibility to shine God's light. God desires to use us to let His glory be seen and known in a dark and wicked world. And so Jesus is the light. His Word is a light. He desires that His light would shine through us, that it would not be hidden, but it would be a light on a hill for the world to see. Now, having said all of that, Let's look at how the, the people hearing this respond. And I would say in a lot of ways, what we're looking at right here in this chapter, this is a master class on unbelief, on rejection. It's amazing to me. Jesus is in the, the midst of these people saying these wonderful things, and the people are not hearing it. They reject it. They refuse it. And it's amazing to me as we see this happening there. So look at verse 13. The Pharisees said, the Pharisees therefore said to Him, You bear witness of yourself, and your witness is not true. See, the light is in their midst, and they reject the light. Why? Because they love their sin. That's what it is. They don't want Jesus to be true. They don't want to submit themselves to the light of Christ. They love their position. They love their status. They love their little religious system that they have set up they love to get glory for themselves they love their hypocrisy and they aren't willing to come to the light and that's exactly what it says in john chapter 3 that's the way that it works john 3 verse 19 it says and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So instead of the Pharisees hearing these claims of Jesus and believing, what do they do? They just try to discredit him. They just want to discredit him. And what do they do? They use court precedent, they use the law. Okay, so they use God's law to try to discredit God's Son. That's amazing to me. And it requires, the law requires multiple witnesses to verify a claim. And so Jesus makes this claim, and instead of them receiving it, they just try to discredit Him with God's law because He testifies of Himself. So they would rather disprove Jesus than simply submit to the wonderful truth and claim of the Son of God. Verse 14, "'Jesus answered and said to them, "'Even if I bear witness of myself, "'my witness is true. "'For I know where I have come from "'and where I am going, "'but you do not know where I come from "'and where I am going. "'You judge according to the flesh, "'I judge no one. "'And yet if I do judge, My judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So Jesus said that his testimony is true even if it is personal testimony. You know what? The truth is the truth, point blank. There are a lot of people in the world who don't believe it, but that doesn't make it any less true. And sometimes I've, you know, had to tell people that. I, I understand that you don't like it, and I understand that you don't believe it, but I, I have to tell you that doesn't make it any less true. The truth is still the truth, whether you like it or even believe it, and one day you will be accountable for it, for whether you received it or rejected it. And so Jesus could make this claim because it was absolutely true, period. But Jesus said, however, that He was not alone in this claim, that the the Father testified of the Son. This would be the most credible and authoritative witness possible, the Heavenly Father testified of His Son. And we know how He did that, right? At the baptism of Jesus, remember that? He spoke. And so, for many people, here's the thing they're going to persist in their unbelief no matter what. Some people just cannot be convinced. They had everything that they could have possibly needed to believe, and they absolutely rejected it. And for some folks, that's just the way that it is. You'll never be able to answer all their questions. You'll never be able to win enough arguments. You'll never be able to satisfy them. I saw this interesting debate. I'll try my best to... uh, I'll try my best to represent this well. These guys are all on a whole other level. But they were debating the resurrection of Christ. And there's a theory that, it's called the hallucination theory, that all of these people at the same time hallucinated when they saw the resurrected Christ. Now that in and of itself, that's it's kind of a, an amazing claim to make. Everybody simultaneously hallucinating the same thing. But they really try to say that such a thing is possible and denying the resurrection. And so the Christian guy debating was basically saying, I, you know, I fear that really it's a matter of no matter what, you wouldn't believe. No matter under any circumstance whatsoever, you would not believe. And so the atheist spoke up and said, well, I guess I would and this is a paraphrase, if, uh, you know, tomorrow I saw some massive, giant, towering figure with lightning and thunder, and he said to me, you know, I'm... I'm sick and tired of your unbelief, and be assured that Jesus is the Son of God and He rose from the dead. And he said, Then uh, I assure you I'd be the first person in the church on, on Sunday. Again, paraphrase. And then the uh the Christian debater said, Interesting, so you wouldn't uh you wouldn't think to yourself, boy, I was just hallucinating right there. <laughs> and so he got him, you know. So when it comes to other people's claims of seeing something extraordinary, oh, clearly they're hallucinating. But in his own case, if he saw something just as extraordinary, he would, uh, he would give that as, you know, a credible, a credible thing. And so that just, it, uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter with some people, it just seems that nothing will get through to them. And so that's what we see here. And that's why we cry out for God in His mercy to do what only He can do, because God's Spirit can break the hardest of hearts. Amen? And I thank God. I'm sure there were many people who thought that about me, that that guy, there's definitely no hope for him, yet God in His mercy, He was able to break through. And so that is our hope. That is our hope. Well, verse 19, then they said to Him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither Me nor My Father. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on Him, for His hour had not yet come. So once again, they challenged Jesus' claim, and He essentially said, You do not know the Father because you don't know Me. If you knew Me, you would know the Father. And we're told here that Jesus is in the treasury. So, this is kind of what I was pointing to earlier when I said we know that he was standing in that very spot where that ceremony would be taking place when he said that. Look at verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself because he says, Where I go, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from beneath and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's amazing. And so again, Jesus reiterates to the, to the people that where he is going, they cannot come. You remember that? that that's already happened once before. He said, you'll seek me and you won't find me. Where I go, you cannot come. And they, they thought, is, is he going to move? Is he going to go to the Greeks? What does he mean when he says this? Well, this time he goes so far, they go so far as to suggest maybe Jesus was talking about suicide, that he was going to kill himself. And that was what Jesus meant by where he was going. They could not follow. But then Jesus kind of goes into this cryptic language again, and he says, You're from beneath. You're of this world. He says, I am from above. I am not of this world. And so he's talking about really God's kingdom versus Satan's kingdom. Uh, This world is under the sway of the wicked one, the Bible tells us. And Jesus says, you're of that world. You are of your father, the devil. And I am not of this world. I am from my father's kingdom. I am from above. And as long as you are in this world, of this world, and under the sway of the wicked one, you are in your sin, and you will ultimately die in your sin, and you will be absolutely accountable for your sin, unless you believe in Me, unless you believe that I am He. And so, verse 25, they say to Him, well, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. So Jesus said, you must believe. You must believe that I am he. And so they said, well, then who are you? And then Jesus said, I am just the one I've been saying all along, one sent from heaven. And Jesus came from heaven to speak the very things that He heard from the Father, and they still didn't understand. So Jesus goes on in verse 28, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of Myself. But as My Father taught Me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, you're going to know that I am he. And this would be ultimately speaking of his crucifixion, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, I would say, are all in view here. Because he says, when those things happen you're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus will be truly vindicated as the one sent by the Father. This phrase here, Jesus uses, I always do those things that please the Father, that is an incredible statement to me. Because we know just how often we do things that are not pleasing to the Father, right? And to think that someone could actually make such a statement is mind-boggling. But there is one who could say that. There was one who could truly say that, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you know, if you believe in Jesus, if you've trusted Christ, if you've repented of your sins and you are filled with the Spirit, if you are a born-again believer, you are holy in God's sight. You are set apart. And though we know that we fall short of God's glorious standard, God is pleased with us always because God sees Christ's righteousness in us. That is the glory of this justification that is ours in Christ. We don't always do things that are pleasing to the Father, yet somehow God looks on us with pleasure because He sees the perfect work of Christ in us. That's one of the the privileges of being in Christ being united to him being adopted into God's family sure we can grieve the holy spirit sure we can even bring God's chastening loving chastening hand down to bear upon us but somehow some way God always looks upon us with pleasure because we are in Christ and Christ is in us and he is our loving heavenly father amen man how sweet is that well verse 31 Jesus said to those who believed in Him, If you abide in My word, you are My disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, some people upon hearing these amazing words, they believed in Jesus. They believed. And so Jesus now turns His attention to those who believed in Him. And He said that the key here is that if you abide in My word. So they received His word. They received the Word of Jesus. They wanted to be His disciples. He said, but you have to abide. What does abide mean? Remain. That's right. To continue. To stay the course. Some people make very quick professions, and then they fall away. Right? And, you know, there's the, so, the parable of the soils, and Jesus talks about why that, why that can be. But we have to stay the course. We have to remain. We have to follow Jesus. We have to be committed for the long haul. And, you know, here's another thing I want to say. Abiding in His Word doesn't just mean reading the Bible every morning. Uh, They didn't have a Bible, many of these people. Certainly didn't have the New Testament. And so what does it mean to abide in His Word? It means to obey it means to put into practice the things that we hear and learn from Jesus because that's what it is to be a disciple, is to be one who carries ourselves or lives our lives in a way that mimics, really, Jesus' life. That's what it is to be a disciple, to be a student, to follow the disciplines of another. And so Jesus says, if you want to really be my disciple, then you've got to do what I say. You have to do it consistently and you've got to do it for the long haul. You have to walk in my ways. Now, as I said, some people, they have a dramatic conversion experience as radical. And I think, you know, not all of us have that. Some people have that, but then they don't stick around. They go on. They go somewhere else. Many people have had no real radical experience at their conversion, but they stay the course anyway, and in time, fruit comes. The fruit comes and they prove to be a true disciple. I know for me, that was kind of my experience. Um, I didn't have some, you know, floating on the clouds, radical experience. I just trusted Christ and committed to start walking with Him and to repent of my sins. And as I did that, day by day, week by week, month by month, I started growing in His Word and I started to experience change in my life, biblical conviction. And there was fruit there. And I realized that I was indeed in Christ and abiding in His Word. And I was experiencing change and fruit in my life. And so that's what it's about. It's about receiving the truth of Jesus, receiving His Word, and continuing in His Word. And we all go through seasons of fruitlessness. Let's just be real. We go through seasons of being cold and lukewarm or roller coaster, or backsliding. It's just part of it. But we will persevere because we belong to Christ and He keeps us. And we will bear fruit because Jesus said that fruit is what brings God much glory and honor. So He's very concerned with who we are in Him. Not so much what we do, but who we are. Amen? That we would be fruit-bearing Christians. And He says you're going to know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's this instantaneous uh, thing where we are set free but there's also this ongoing process of growing and producing fruit now interestingly enough these new believers they they instantly question jesus's words this is amazing to me verse 33 they answered him we are abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone how can you say that you will be made free jesus answered them most assuredly i say to you Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so they believe in Jesus, and he tells them that if they believe in him, that they will be set free. And then they insist that they have never been in bondage which is weird because they have been in bondage many times. They're currently in bondage to the Romans. And that's why they were looking for a Savior who would come and set them free from the Roman yoke. And so what's interesting to me about, about this is that's actually the opposite of confession. Confession is, I am a slave to sin. I have sinned. I do need to be set free. Please help me. Biblical confession and, and repentance is not, well, I'm not a slave. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm good. I'm free. That's, that's, that's actually hard-heartedness. That's rejection. That's saying, I don't need you, Jesus. I don't need to be set free because I'm, I'm good. You see what I'm saying? And so it's, it's interesting to me how they instantly flip that. They minimize the severity of their own situation. Jesus clarifies that they are indeed slaves. Slaves to sin and its results. You know, sin is a harsh taskmaster. It's pleasurable for a season, you know? It's fun at first. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it, right? But eventually, it gets its hooks in you. And you become a slave to it. And it ain't so fun anymore. I just know that was my experience as a teenager. I didn't have any responsibilities. I didn't have any worries. I didn't really didn't have anything to lose. And so I lived a life of partying, and it was a lot of fun. But... Uh, Eventually, it wasn't fun anymore. Eventually, I became a slave to that. And I did have a lot to lose, and I did lose a lot. And then I couldn't break free anymore. And I think a lot of us can relate with that. We know what that's like. And so we know that we are slaves of sin. Eventually, we come to that realization by God's grace. And we know that there's only hope in Jesus Christ who sets us free from that. And He says, if you believe in Him, you will be set free. The end of sin is death. The ultimate end of sin is death. So that's what Jesus came to set us free from. Sin and death. To set us free from judgment, ultimately, for our sin. And Jesus said that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so I hope that we have all experienced that freedom in here today. I hope that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good that you've experienced the grace and the kindness and the mercy of a loving heavenly father in Jesus Christ his son our savior and that touch of the Holy Spirit that has called us from death into life from darkness into light that has turned our hearts from a heart of stone to a a heart of flesh amen it happens only by believing in Jesus Christ believing in Jesus Christ for salvation that is God's gracious gift to the world, because we know that the whole world was dead in sin and trespass, rebels against God, such were all of us in here at one point in time. Yet God demonstrated His great love for us and that He sent His Son, Jesus, to live God's perfect law, to live it out, to obey it in every single point, and then to die a criminal's death on our behalf as a substitute for us. We are God, we have broken God's law. We're lawbreakers. Jesus was a law keeper. He kept God's law perfectly. He only did those things that were pleasing to the Father. And then he died in our place, died the death and took the wrath of God upon himself that was meant for us. But here's the kicker. It's only yours if you believe in Jesus. It's only yours. This is only true of you if you confess Christ today and trust in him for salvation ask God to forgive you of your sins and to, to give you His Holy Spirit, to bring you from death into life. Amen. Father, we love you very much, and we thank you that you have indeed saved us. For as many as have believed in you, Lord, you have given the right to be called sons and daughters of God. And so we are, Lord, and we thank you for that. We celebrate you here today. There's nothing of greater worth or value in this life or in the life to come than You, Your precious Son, the One to whom we will sing, Worthy is the Lamb, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus, You're worthy to receive the reward of Your suffering. We love You and we thank You so much.